Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Nellie the elephant packed her trunk and said goodbye to the circus. Off she went with a trumpety trump. Bum, bum, bum. Do not know that one. I'm the worst singer in the world. This is the second part of our story about Happy the Elephant. In the first episode, we heard how seven baby elephants packed their trunks and sailed across the Pacific to America, where they were split up and sold to different zoos and circuses. Three of the original seven died early. Two now perform in a circus, one lives in Oklahoma, and our heroine, Happy, is at Bronx Zoo, where she's lived alone since 2006. Now we're focusing on her incredible journey from the forests of Thailand to a grand stuccoed courthouse on Madison Avenue and, who knows, maybe to the green hills of an elephant sanctuary in Tennessee, if a lawyer has his way. But what's important about Happy's story, why we're delving into it now, in the middle of a pandemic, an unprecedented economic crisis and what is probably the most crucial American election of our lifetimes, is that it matters it could crack open a fundamental fault line in our relationships with animals, between the way we've lived up to now and the way we'll live in the future. This fault line, this potentially seismic change, will come about through understanding how animals think and feel. The more we learn about them, the more we're starting to appreciate how they might be more like us than we thought. And if they are... Can we treat them so differently? Can we lock them in cages, bonds or small enclosures like happies? Slow News is a podcast made by us here at Tortoise. We're a news publisher in an app, online, in our daily SenseMaker email and, as you already know, in podcasts. What's different about us is that we investigate what's driving the news and we'd love you to join us. By becoming a member of our newsroom, you'll get access to our journalism and you can join our open news meetings and help decide what matters in the world and how we should report it. To get access to all of Tortoise, all you have to do is download the Tortoise app, now available in the iOS or Google Play Store, and take a free trial. In this episode, we'll try to get inside an elephant's brain 
in an attempt to understand how they think, communicate and feel. And we'll learn how an elephant named after a Disney character came to be at the centre of a legal and philosophical storm. It starts in 2005. And I remember pretty vividly, actually, that, that basically every day in the middle of the summer, early in the morning, I would meet uh, Dr. Diana Reese, uh, who was my colleague and collaborator on that project, at the entrance to the elephant barn. This is Joshua Plotnik, a professor of psychology and the man who, unwittingly, kick-started the battle over Happy's future. And then we would go up onto the roof where I just remember it being like one of those flat tar roofs where uh, the, the elephants were in the barn beneath us. And so just the reflection of the sun off of the roof and off of us was, was incredibly hot. But it was really exciting because I had never had a chance to do research on elephants before. In fact, I had I'd probably never even been that close to an elephant. Josh, together with Diana Reese, an expert in dolphin cognition, was at the zoo to carry out, for the first time, a mirror self-recognition test on an elephant. The MSR, or red dot test as it's sometimes known, was designed in 1970 by Gordon Gallup Jr., an American psychologist. His inspiration came from an anecdote Charles Darwin told about meeting an orangutan named Jenny in London Zoo in 1838. Darwin had watched as Jenny threw a hissy fit after her keeper teased her with an apple. He then observed her looking into a mirror and it made him think about what it might be like to be an orangutan and whether she might have recognised herself in the hairy, saggy-breasted, orange-tinted ape gawping at her. It made Gallup wonder if the mirror on the cage wall might provide a way to measure an animal's self-awareness. He designed a test. What does it mean to be able to recognize yourself in a mirror? It, it's something that had little or no adaptive value during human evolutionary history. The mirrors were few and far between. This is Gordon Gallup Jr. discussing the mirror test in an interview with the MetaQuest podcast just a few years ago. Being able to recognize yourself in a mirror, however, means that you're capable of realizing that it's your behavior and not the behavior of another person that's depicted when you look at and interact with the mirror. So it's an index or a proxy for self-awareness. The theory goes that, having got acquainted with a mirror, a self-aware creature will notice changes in its appearance. Gallup's first guinea pigs were, in fact, for adolescent chimpanzees. A mirror was first placed in their cages and, once they'd had a chance to examine it, they were anaesthetised while marks were painted on their face using red dye. When each chimp came to, Gallup watched as it looked at itself in the mirror. If any of them touched or gestured at the new red mark, this was an indication that it knew something was different, and by touching it, realised it was looking at itself in the mirror. Only individuals from a few species have passed the mirror test. Chimps, bonobos, dolphins, killer whales, orangutans and magpies, what are generally regarded as the smarter animals. It's not red anymore. What's not red? My, 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 my this, my head. A human child is typically aged between 18 months and two years old when she or he clicks that she's looking at herself. Usually a baby younger than about 18 months doesn't make the connection between itself and the person in the mirror. The child may even look behind the mirror for the stranger it sees. 
And so, back to the hot summer of 2005, to the roof of the Elephant Barn in Bronx Zoo with Joshua Plotnik looking down on a very large mirror. What would happen every day is that we would get our cameras set up on the roof and we would be ready. And then the, the elephant keepers would come out and ask us if we were ready. And then they would open the barn door and the elephants would come out of the barn into the yard right beneath us. And so we had an opportunity to kind of in some ways have a bird's eye view of the elephant's perspective as, as they first approached the mirror. Um, and I remember the first time they approached the mirror, uh, they were both very quiet. So the, if I remember correctly, the first two elephants we saw approach the mirror were Maxine and Patty. Um, and they, they approached it very, very quickly and also very relaxed, which is not necessarily what you'd expect most animals to do. You expect them um, to be apprehensive, to show a social response to a strange elephant they'd never seen before, which is definitely something we'd expect from these elephants because they live in a zoo and they don't have opportunities to see any other elephants besides um, Happy and Sammy, who are the two elephants. All the elephants at the Bronx Zoo got an opportunity in front of the mirror, including Maxine, Patty and Happy's new companion, Sammy. But that ebullience and domineering behaviour that led to them attacking Grumpy in the first episode, well, it's on show here. Happy, the more retiring elephant, hangs back. They went right up to the mirror, so uh, we were really excited by that. And then I remember that within the first few minutes, or certainly within the first 30 minutes, um, the elephants were doing a lot of really close mirror inspection. So they would touch the mirror very closely with their trunks, and then there was a lot of over-the-mirror trunk smelling. Um, and one of the elephants actually got down on her front legs, on her knees, um, and smelled underneath the mirror. Um, and I remember Diana grabbing my arm when that happened because we were both so excited and surprised by the fact that they were not only so interested in the mirror, but this to us was a telltale sign that the elephants were trying to figure out what was going on in or behind the mirror. Um, so whether they, even though they weren't showing social responses, they were certainly interested in trying to figure out where the image in the mirror, whether it was an elephant or not, we don't know, to the elephant, trying to figure out where that, that, uh, that image was or where that elephant in the mirror was, if that's what they were thinking. And then by day two and three, uh, the elephants are doing what we call mirror testing behavior. So they're, they're moving their heads in and out of mirror view as if they're asking themselves, you know, why is that elephant doing what I'm doing? Very anthropomorphic, but it's a good way of trying to kind of picture what they might've been thinking. And then, then when they moved to self-directed behavior, that's when we were really, really just, you know, ecstatic. The fact that they were uh, getting really close to the mirror, they were opening their mouths, they were pulling on their ears, behaviors that you would not expect them to do in a social context. And so that told us that these elephants recognized themselves and that's when we moved on to the mark test. Chimpanzees, interestingly, often turn around and bend down using the mirror to investigate parts of themselves that usually remain private. The elephants, unsurprisingly, did not. The elephant-sized mirror was taken out of the enclosure at Bronx Zoo. The keepers then painted a mark, a big white cross, on one side of each elephant's face and across an invisible paint on the other side. The paint they used was non-toxic Halloween paint they were at pains to stress. The invisible mark was there as a control to make sure that the elephants wouldn't be reacting to the feeling of the cross. And then, Maxine and Patty were not that interested in the mark, but P Happy, you know, Happy was an elephant that went to the mirror, 
uh, did a lot of close eye inspection, meaning she got very close with her eye. She walked away. And when she was away from the mirror, she reached up and touched the mark a few times. And then later in that session, she went back and then in full view of the mirror, she reached up and, and, and made a very clear touch of that, of that X on her face. So that attention to that white mark on her face, while not paying any attention to the invisible sham mark that we have put on the other side of her face to control for um, non-visual cues that may have gotten her interested in the mark. Again, that's, that's, that's the, that's the exciting moment when an animal passes the mark test and uh, Happy was the first elephant that had passed this test. Happy was immortalized. Her story was told in the pages of august scientific journals and in newspapers around the world. Although Josh is the first person to emphasize the limitations and uncertainties of the mirror test, Happy's achievement in passing it has, inadvertently, as with so much of her life, led to the storm that is currently swirling around her. Happy is a smart elephant. The mirror test proved that. But no one knows if she is exceptionally bright, or maybe just more vain than Patty and Maxine. Since then, another elephant has passed the mirror test. But although the test does indicate self-awareness, not passing it does not preclude it. It could be that Max, Patty and Sammy were not particularly bothered by having a cross on their forehead. Coming up with a way to measure elephant intelligence was never going to be easy. They are certainly too big to fit inside an MRI machine. So, much of what we now know comes from observing them, in the wild and in captivity. Asian elephants have lived in captivity for around 4,000 years. The Hindu deity, Ganesh, takes the form of an elephant, albeit one with four human arms and a bejeweled throne. Elephants have worked in the logging industry, carried Hannibal's army across the Alps, acted as the bridal limo at Indian weddings, and, more recently... The elephants and their keepers grow up together from a very young age. This close relationship eventually leads to a great source of income. Taken tourists for rides in both Asia and Africa. They hold a fabled place in cultures around the world and in the hearts of most children, thanks in no small part to Dumbo and Baba. But apart from some basic anatomical facts that we might have picked up when we were young, that they can weigh in at over six tons, and their trunks have around 40,000 muscles, and some fable that elephants never forget, we've only recently started to learn more about what they can and can't do, and how they think and feel. Happy's mirror test not only altered the potential path of her life, it changed Josh's. I'm just... I'm, I'm fascinated by what we're seeing and I'm watching these elephants. I don't know much about them. Um, it was my first time really watching them. And there were just so many questions that I was asking myself in the middle of this experiment. You know, I was looking at the elephants when they were touching each other with their trunks. I was um, looking at how they were communicating with each other. I was looking at whether there was any cooperative behavior between them. And I realized that I couldn't answer any of those questions because nobody had studied it. He refocused his career on finding out. He started up a charitable endeavour in Thailand called Think Elephants International, which aimed to get into the heads of elephants and to share that knowledge with local people as a way of helping them to protect and conserve the elephants among whom they live. A lot of animals in the animal kingdom cooperate. Flexibility is a sign of intelligence, the fact that animals can adapt to a rapidly changing world. Um, I'll give you an example. So we were looking at 
whether elephants could learn to pull two rope ends that were attached to a table um, to cause the table to come towards them so they could eat the food that was on the table. If one elephant pulled one end of the rope without waiting for the partner to pull their end of the rope, the rope became unthreaded from the table and they couldn't eat the food. The elephants learned really quickly to coordinate their behavior to do this, and they learned to wait for their partner before they pulled. But what was, I think, really incredible, and this is just an example, is that there were two five-year-old female elephants who learned the task just the way every other elephant did. These two five-year-olds, there was a trial, right? So we're, we're doing this many times, and all of a sudden, um, the elephant that I was that I was paying attention to, she stopped doing the strategy of holding the rope and waiting for her partner and then pulling with her partner. She put her foot on the rope so that when the other elephant arrived and started to pull, the table moved, but the elephant holding the rope with her foot didn't need to do any work, right? She's basically just holding it from going away, and the other elephant has to do all the work, and that's the strategy she used from that point forward. And I watched the videos many times, and I cannot tell you at what point she figured that out. It's not like she just figured it out by trial and error, that she accidentally stepped on it. It was very deliberate, and every trial prior to that, she pulled. That's smarts. That shows what people who have worked with elephants know, that they can and do cooperate, solve problems, show flexibility and understanding of unique situations. Using a word that has become key to Happy's trial, they can act autonomously, like we do. Can you hear me? Other elephant scientists are continually discovering new wonders. It's quite, it's difficult because, um, yes, I see them as, I see these rumbles as as having different meanings. This is Joyce Poole. She has spent 40 years studying wild elephants in Africa and has filed an affidavit in support of Happy's release from Bronx Zoo. So when an elephant is giving an indication she wants to go in a particular direction, she'll stand pointing with her body in the direction she wants to go and give a very long, flat rumble. And, you know, all elephants do this. And so that particular behavior, and they give a lot of intention movement. So they may swing a foot, they ear flap in a particular way. They look back to see if anyone is paying attention to them. And they'll call like every minute until they, they, they get the others to go, to go with them. Or sometimes, you know, they agree to go their separate ways. So, so I've found that, you know, there are these particular rumbles that sound in a, a t- particular way that occur in, in very particular contexts. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. 
Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. One of them is the must rumble. Thanks in great part to Joyce's work, we know that elephants communicate, and increasingly how, by using all their senses, like we do. Through her non-profit, Elephant Voices, Joyce spent lockdown collating all the different behaviours she has witnessed, over 300 to date, into the Elephant Ethergram, an online database which includes audio files of discrete, identifiable sounds. So my producer Matt decided to test me. He played some elephant noises. What do you think that means? I think it means careful beware. No, it's an infant trying to eat. Okay. <laughs> How did it make you feel? Well, I think I feel a bit sorry for that elephant. It's playing. Oh, <laughs> so it turns out I can't speak elephant. Supposedly, we can tell when elephants are scared, separated, or trying to intimidate. Just not me, it turns out. We know that they're aware of their family, that they remember their friends, grieve their dead, and recognize themselves as well as different individuals, both elephant and human. That they interact with each other and try to negotiate the obstacles that we place in their way as far as they can. Well, we're, 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 we're confining them. Elephants are having right now, elephants, a lot of their planning actually has to do with us. It's funny, you know, we think about drones and we have, you know, satellite collars and airplanes and we're monitoring elephants. But yet they're so much better at monitoring us than we are at monitoring them. Absolutely. So elephants with this extraordinary hearing, their ability to pick up vibrations through the ground, they're busy listening in to what we're doing all the time. And their movement is totally determined already by what we are doing. So for instance, you, you'll see elephants stop, listen for cowbells, you know, okay, where are the Maasai now? Okay, they're over there, therefore we're gonna go here. So there's this 
this sort of dance that's going on right now as human beings just compress and compress the the space that elephants have available so they already are living by our rules in a sense and breaking them it's a sad reality that many interactions between humans and elephants in the wild lead to conflict and that despite a hefty weight advantage the elephant usually comes off worse farmers set off firecrackers over elephants who raid their crops Poachers slaughter them for their tusks. Elephants die of hunger and thirst when humans divert the rivers that would once have filled their waterholes and made the trees and grass they eat grow. Little grasping that the elephants are responsible for vegetating large tracts of land, spreading seeds are helpfully encased in ready-made fertilizer. In Amboseli in Kenya, under Mount Kilimanjaro, there's a, there's a river flowing. This is Lucy Bates, an elephant cognition expert. And the, the elephants love crossing this river. It's nice and cool in the evening. There's lots of green grass and they head off towards a swamp where the food is really lush. And as they're crossing this river, a young calf who's about one, I think, her mother was a few, sort of 20 metres further ahead, but she was with aunts and cousins. And climbing out of the, the river... The, the bank was quite steep and very muddy. And all that her aunt did behind her was just stick a trunk in the mud to give the calf leverage so that the calf could rest, sort of push its leg against the um, aunt's tusk and pull itself out. Because it had been trying for a good few minutes mm. and just kept sliding down. It was quite <laughs> funny to watch, but, you know, presumably quite distressing for the calf. And so that that aunt, not even, you know, wasn't even the calf's mother, that aunt looked at the problem and came up with a very simple solution to it. And it helped. It, it helped the calf. It understood the calf needed something and it just acted in a very straightforward, simple way and did it in exactly the same way as I think a person would help a young child who stumbled mm. crossing a road, for example. The, the key thing is... We don't know for sure what's going what's going on in their minds, but by looking at their behaviour and seeing these things, and the reactions are very human-like. Hearing that story made me think of Happy, confined to her barn at Bronx Zoo, occasionally taken out to the grassy enclosure for visitors to gape at her. Would a human be treated like that? Well, yes, it seems. It so happens the Bronx Zoo has a dark past that was only very recently dragged out into the open. Back in the early years of the 20th century, a missionary named Samuel Phillips Werner bought a young Mabuti man, a pygmy, from slave traders in the Congo. His name was Otabenga. His teeth were filed to a point, and he apparently cost a pound of salt and a bolt of cloth which, even in those days, was probably less than the $800 that the Lion Country Safari Park stumped up for Happy. Werner brought Benga to America, where he was put on show at the Great St. Louis Fair. Following that, and a brief, unsatisfactory trip to Africa, Benga returned to America with Werner. At a loss as to what to do with his diminutive companion, Werner gave him, first to the New York Natural History Museum, and when that didn't work out, to the Bronx Zoo, where he ended up sleeping in the monkey house, on view to the public, like his friend, Dohong, the orang who lived next door. Benga's story does not end well. 
Although he was taken away from the zoo after an intervention from some enlightened African-American clergyman, he never adapted to life on the outside and ended up shooting himself. It was only this August, as Black Lives Matter protests engulfed American cities, that the current president of the Wildlife Conservation Society, which owns and runs Bronx Zoo, officially apologized for its treatment of Benga. The Bronx Zoo is apologizing for a shameful and shocking episode from 114 years ago. The zoo acknowledges past leaders participated in racism that robbed an African man of his humanity. Saying that it was important to reflect on WCS's own history and the persistence of racism in our institution. Today, I challenge myself and my colleagues to do better and to never look away whenever and wherever injustice occurs. Well, I wonder whether they're looking at happy. I'm Stephen Wise, and I'm president of the Non-Human Rights Project. I, I grew up you know, with cats and dogs, and I really loved my cats and dogs. I think I was upset one, one day when I was 12 years old by the way the animals are being crammed in the cages, and I wrote to my state legislator. I don't have that writing, that, and I don't remember doing it, but I have his letter back to me. So uh, it's telling me he was going to look into it. So that- This is Stephen Wise, our human protagonist or antagonist, depending on your perspective. He is, as he sees it, Happy's lawyer, fighting for Happy's freedom. Wise grew up in a small town in Maryland, not too far from Baltimore, and graduated with a first degree in chemistry and a second in law. He hung up his shingle soon after and started practising. He was bumping along, doing a bit of personal injury this and a bit of criminal law that, when a friend gave him a copy of Peter Singer's book, Animal Rights. It changed his life. And so when I read his book, you know, when I kind of closed it and said, I'm going to start, I'm going to become a lawyer for non-human animals. That terminology is very Singer. Uh, you know, at that time. And uh, that's what I started doing. So I started learning about it and I started going on radio shows. And, and at that time, now we're talking about 1980. So I was kind of a, a weird look, you know, I was kind of odd, you know, I was, I was considered to be a very odd person at that time. Uh, and so... Uh, and I just started uh, taking clients who had uh, who had any kind of of a lawsuit potentially that could involve non-human animals. Sort of, for instance, what what kind of lawsuits? Well, there were uh, lots of um, people whose dog would would uh, dogs would bite someone, for example, and they'd be sentenced to death. And they would bring me in, and I would try to save their lives. I did about 150 of those cases over the next 20, 25 years. Or um, veterinary malpractice cases, or sometimes <clears throat> I would file an Endangered Species Act case or a Marine Mammal Protection Act case. There weren't very many people like me at the time in the in the 80s, so I probably almost any case involving a non-human animal, you know, in the state of Massachusetts, probably ended up coming to me. He realised that while he was fiddling on the fringes of animal welfare, great swathes of their brethren were suffering from a comprehensive lack of rights. What was needed, Wise decided, was a targeted assault on animal rights, or rather, the lack thereof. He founded the Non-Human Rights Project, a charity which aims to secure fundamental human rights for non-human animals through litigation, legislation and education. Jane Goodall, the revered primatologist, is on its board. When Wise started looking into how animal, sorry, 
non-human animal, rights differed from human ones, he found what he regarded to be an especially apposite parallel buried in our, that is, our British civil rights history. James Somerset was an 18-year-old boy who was uh, he was picked up by slave traders in West Africa and brought to Virginia. And there a uh, Virginia planter named, uh, named Charles Stewart, you know, bought bought him. And he, kind of, he, he was 26, I think, Stewart was. So in some ways, they kind of grew up together over the next 20 years. So um, Stewart, through like a bizarre set of circumstances, um, ended up being the um, customs agent for the British crown in, the, in all of the colonies in North America. James Somerset lived just over 250 years ago, a slave. In legal terms, a thing or object, just as happy and all animals are regarded now. After 20 years of slaving for Charles Stuart, James had had enough. He wanted his rights. One thing is that he uh, converted to Christianity. And uh, the reason slaves did that is there was this rumor among slaves that one Christian would not enslave another Christian, even though no one ever knew anyone who had ever become a Christian who then you know, threw off their shackles. So he became, he became a Christian for that purpose, but also for another purpose in that uh, he got godparents, three, three godparents, and it was understood within the slave community that the godparents were there to help you escape if you decided you ever wanted to, wanted, wanted to escape. So in October then of 1771, uh, James Somerset um, you know, tells Charles Stewart that he's leaving, and then, he, and then he insults him in some way. Charles Stewart's really pissed off, and then he just drops out of sight, and he pisses Charles Stewart off so much that he hires slave catchers to find James Somerset. James was caught and arrested. Charles Stewart, clearly wanting to rid himself of his troublesome slave, packed him onto a ship bound for Jamaica. While imprisoned aboard the Anne and Mary, some men, possibly Somerset's godparents, sought a writ of habeas corpus, literally meaning produce the body, against what they saw as Somerset's unlawful imprisonment. So only a person, but not a thing, can, can, can get a writ of habeas corpus. So you have these godparents, assuming that it's them, go into court on behalf of James Somerset, who is a slave who's now chained to the deck of the Anna Mary. So what they're trying to do is to, is, is to persuade, I believe what they're trying to do was to, would be to persuade Lord Mansfield that he might not be a thing, that the, Lord Mansfield should issue the writ of habeas corpus and assume without deciding at that, at that time that, that it might be possible that James Somerset was not a thing and ought to be a person, should not be a slave, you know, should be free. And, um, and, and he issues a writ of habeas corpus and they manage to get to the ship before it sails and, and they bring him back. Somerset's case would have repercussions across the world. The arguments of John Philpott Curran, one of his lawyers, would be cited by American abolitionists such as Frederick Douglass. Lord Mansfield ruled in James Somerset's favour. And that meant James Somerset, who'd been a slave for 20 years, was not only free, but had become a person in the eyes of the law. Not a possession of his supposed owner as he had been, but a person with all the attendant rights that brought, including the right not to be unlawfully detained. And his case continues to have ripples across the Atlantic. Stephen Wise has written a book about the Somerset Affair. He clearly sees the parallels between that landmark civil rights case, which turned out to be the abolitionists' first wedge under slavery's door, and this one, 
happy is his modern day Somerset. And the staff and supporters of the Non-Human Rights Project are her godparents. In the centuries that followed, we have hopped from one civil rights battle to the next. Unbelievably, it was only a hundred years ago that women in America were granted the vote. Jim Crow was only dismantled in 1965. Until 2011, gay men, lesbians and bisexuals were excluded from serving in the US military. For we are not a nation that says, don't ask, don't tell. We are a nation that says, out of many, we are one. We are a nation that welcomes the service of every patriot. We are a nation that believes that all men and women are created equal. Those are the ideals that generations have fought for. Those are the ideals that we uphold today. And now it is my honor to sign this bill into law. Today we're debating trans rights. Tomorrow, or next month, in a fancy courtroom in New York City, the spotlight could turn on animal rights. Next time, an elephant's day in court. Next time, we hear the story of Happy's day in court and what it could mean for her future and the future of all animals. So if Happy's story so far is one that's touched you and you'd like to listen to or read more Tortoise Investigations, the best thing to do is download the Tortoise app, now available in the iOS or Google Play stores. You can take a 30-day free trial to get you going, which gives you access to the Tortoise Members app and all the journalism Tortoise does, as well as early bird access to the latest audio stories and in-depth investigations. You'll get the chance to come to daily open editorial events called Thinkins, where you can share your view with Tortoise editors and guest speakers. These include Elizabeth Day and James O'Brien in the next couple of weeks. You'll also get The Sensemaker, a daily newsletter email full of calm and clear analysis delivered straight to your inbox, and loads of other member benefits from special summits to editor voicemails. So please do try the app, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. And please do tune in for the final part of our story about Happy, the elephant in the courtroom. What comes to mind when you think of Amber Heard? A liar? A survivor? A narcissist? The trial of Depp v. Heard was a global phenomenon, but I want to know, was it a fair fight? I'm Alexi Mostris, the host of Sweet Bobby and Hoaxed. In my new podcast, I'm investigating whether Amber Heard was the victim of an organised trolling campaign. Just search for Who Trolled Amber wherever you get your podcasts.